remember many years ago, I was uh, listening to a preacher and he was giving a children's talk. Now this was the time when children's talks were, were, were little uh, five minutes affairs. You know, there was no visual aid. It was just a simple little story. But it's a story that stuck with me. Uh, and the story goes back, way back into the 1930s, on the streets of London. Um, and a little girl was walking along the street on her own, which was actually not unusual then, it would be now, but it wasn't there. A policeman came up to her and he said, uh, excuse me, he said, you, you look a bit lost. She said, I am lost. I don't know my way home. He said, well, what's your address? I'll take you home. He said, I can't remember. Oh, but she said, I know this. If you can take me to the King's Cross station, I'll find my way home from there because I know how to get home. And that's what the policeman did. He took her to King Cross Station, which wasn't far away, and she found a way home. The spiritual application was very simple. All of us are lost spiritually before God. But if we come to the King's Cross that Jesus died on, then we will find a way back home to God. It's a simple illustration, isn't it? And the preacher went on to say this. He said, um, just as King's Cross Station is a central part of London, so the King's Cross that Jesus died on is central to our salvation. That's why Paul says, earlier on in that passage I read, in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ and him crucified. And must come to. I will remember as a, a young 16-year-old, I didn't come from a Christian background. My parents didn't believe. I never went to church. I had no concept whatsoever about Christian things. But I remember uh, I met a Christian at a place where I worked. And he shared the gospel with me. And I remember him giving me a book by Billy Graham called Peace of God. And I have to say, I was riveted as I started reading this book. Obviously, I was opened to spiritual things uh, and I couldn't put it down. When I came to the chapter called Why Jesus Died, which is all about the cross, I realised that everything then made sense. I was a sinner, that I needed a saviour. I could get right with God, I could be reconciled with my maker. I could now receive that hope of life eternal. The cross was the answer. The cross was the remedy. The cross made the difference. It's a reminder to us this morning that the cross must be central in the gospel we preach, as well as the life that we live. Take away the cross, you have no gospel, you have actually no Christianity. So why is the cross important this morning? Well, I'll just 
remind us of four reasons before we get into the passage. Don't get worried, I'm not going to be long. Firstly, because there's no forgiveness of sin apart from the cross. Jesus came for that one person purpose to deal with the problem of sin, which separates us from God and sentences us to a lost eternity. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the trees so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Which is why when we share the gospel, we must always start at the level of a person's sin, the need of forgiveness, for until a person's sin is dealt with by a holy, righteous God, then the word salvation has no real meaning. Remember the old song we used to sing, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Well, actually, we are happy all the day because our sin has been dealt with once and for all, not held against us anymore. When Jesus died on the cross and said it was finished, that was it, it was done, complete. Doesn't mean to say we still don't sin, but we're not under condemnation anymore. So there's no forgiveness of sin apart from the cross. Secondly, there's no reconciliation between ourselves and God apart from the cross. Until the benefits of Jesus dying in our place to achieve the forgiveness of sin has been received, the barrier between us and God remains in place. Ephesians 2, 13 and 18 makes it very clear that the blood of Jesus is the only means of removing the barrier between us and God. Look at verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. You could say there is now an at one moment with us and our God. No reconciliation with us, us and God apart from the cross. Thirdly, there's no avoidance of hell apart from the cross. This is why it's important to include the cross. Now, there's one thing people don't want to believe in today is the whole subject of hell. What we're talking about is eternal punishment, everlasting separation from God. Even Christians don't want to believe in the subject. Some even try to make it more palatable by speaking of it as annihilation. In other words, you have no existence whatsoever for all eternity. But listen to what the Bible says. It speaks about this fearful reality. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9, He will punish those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Quite a warning to us. But the cross can rescue us from such a torment. The cross can deliver us from such a prospect. Spurgeon said, that, Think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. That's why the cross is important. There's no avoidance from the cross and fourthly, there's no prospect of heaven apart from the cross. Strange it might seem, you know, in our secular and humanistic society that doesn't want to believe in God, doesn't want to believe in the Bible, yet does want to believe in some form of afterlife, even though they can't explain what they're thinking of. Universalism is still the name of the game today. If there is something, 
then surely we're all going to be okay at the end. But Jesus makes it plain that there is only one way to God and that is through him. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And a few verses from those words in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Talking about heaven. For who? Those who are trusting and believing and following him. To offer heaven on any other basis other than the cross is to offer a false hope to people. That's why we sing at Easter, don't we? There is no good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. But one man, as we know, who found the prospect of heaven in reality was this man here in Luke 23, who is next to Jesus. Here in this passage, Jesus gives this simple man words of assurance that are given to all who call upon Christ. And with these words of assurance, there are three things that we need to note. We need to note God's mercy, God's grace, and God's salvation. First of all, God's mercy. Remember there were two men beside Jesus. Both were next to Christ, both were sinful men, both were dying men. One died in his sin, hard and stubborn. The other repented of his sin, believed, and, as we see, was saved. Both deserved justice, but one received mercy. And it's always God's prerogative to have mercy on whom he will. J.C. Ryle, the the, the very well-known Bishop of Liverpool, had that favourite saying, doesn't he? He said, one thief was saved that sinners might not despair, but only one that sinners might not presume. So we have God's mercy, also God's grace. Thief on the cross, that Jesus gave these words of assurance to his living proof that salvation is by grace alone and not by works. Couldn't add anything to his salvation, could he? Couldn't get himself baptised, couldn't uh, go and join a church, he couldn't do any good works. It was all of grace. Reminder to us that our acceptance before God is only there because of his grace and his grace alone. That's why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I found was blind, but I see. So we see God's mercy, God's grace, also God's salvation. For this man, death would not now be a hopeless experience like it is for many people today. Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's an immediate thing. No hell for this man, no purgatory, no annihilation, no reincarnation coming back. Simply immediate glory. His darkness and despair would be now turned into hope and glory. But not only would it be a hopeless experience, it would not now be a lonely experience. Because Jesus said to him, you will be with me. That's all he needed to know. And that's all we need to know this morning. For as believers in Christ, the greatest joy and blessing to look forward to is surely that you and I one day are going to be with our Lord.
Previous night, Jesus made a similar promise to the disciples, didn't he? When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back, take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. This man received the same promise, amazing, as the disciples. Obviously, Jesus died before he did. and Therefore, he was on hand to welcome him into his eternal glory. Spurgeon, again, the, the famous Baptist preacher, said this man actually was Jesus' last companion on earth and will be his first companion in paradise. It's a lovely thought for this man, wasn't it? What a difference to die in Christ. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, says, because of Christ, death has become friendly to me. Changes everything. I wonder if that's so with you here this morning. I wonder how we face this whole prospect. Because it's something that we're all going to have to face one day. Unless, of course, Jesus comes first beforehand. So we see God's mercy, God's grace, God's salvation. But I just want to spend a few moments on this dialogue that took place between this man and Jesus. Notice the request of the man. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His words represent the prayers of all people who come to Christ. Notice the stages of this man. It starts off in a very uh, distressing way, doesn't it? And he, he had a, a distressing fate indeed ahead of him. He says in verse 32, we read, Two men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed. Here was a man who, who knew his future was sealed physically, but also spiritually. Certainly physically, he was hung up to die in a horrific, slow and agonising death that he knew would be uh, no escape from. But spiritually, here was a man actually already dead in his sins, as Ephesians 2, 11 tells us, as all people are. But notice before he called on Jesus, he himself actually joined with the other man in mocking Jesus, the other Gospels tells us that, that they both were mocking him. So here was a man without hope, without Christ. No wonder he had a, a distressing fate ahead of him. But also notice how that became a very disturbing fear for this man. As the other man continued to mock Jesus, suddenly this man changed his tune. It says in verse 40, Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? This man was beginning to realise the truth that soon he himself will be face to face with his maker as all of us are one day going to be. The Bible tells us each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. That's going to happen one day, whether we want to think about it or not. Uh, certainly when you and I know there are no better position than this man on the cross if we do not know Jesus as our Lord and our saviour. Here was a man then who was now beginning to fear God and the prospect of facing the judgment of God. Now I mention all this because we have to say, I have to say here this morning that today one thing that's black in our society is the fear of God and the prospect of the judgment of God. People don't think about it at all today. Remember many years ago, uh, a well-known British um, uh, English speaker called Alan Redpath 
was preaching in Ireland, uh, in Belfast. And he was preaching on God's judgment. And afterwards he was at the door shaking hands with people and he noted people coming out of the, the meeting laughing and joking. He prayed within himself. He said, Lord, what's wrong with my preaching? How can they come out of this meeting like this and not have the fear of God upon them? We need to pray for the fear of God to come upon people today. Because until people begin to fear God, they're not going to be thinking about salvation. Now I mention this again because I, I believe the gospel for me, I said at 16 I, I, I read that book by Billy Graham and I was convinced that the gospel was true. I didn't become a Christian then. And for the next six years, um, I weighed it up in my mind. I, I, I believed it all, but it meant nothing to me. Till one day a gave me a tract. And on the tract, it was a gospel tract. It's all about God's judgment. And I was going to have to face God one day. And it brought home to me that all, these, all this time I've been wondering what shall I do and should I become a Christian. Now I realise if anything happened to me, I was going to have to face my maker. And it shook me up and it was a means of beginning to make me think about getting right with God. But and die once, but after to face judgment. Acts 17. God has said a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Where there's no fear of God, you will often find there will be no true faith in Christ that will follow. So here was this man, very distressed, but then he had a, a great disturbing fear, but that turned into a dawning faith. Notice what he says here, Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's happening to this man? One moment he was mocking Jesus, the next moment he was asking mercy from Jesus. Faith was beginning to dawn upon him. Here was a man with no religious background, no spiritual privilege, a man with nothing going for him, and yet faith begins to dawn. Why? How did it come about? God did it. It's as simple as that. God did it. Just like he always does, just like he's done for some of us here this morning. None of us are here this morning can boast of anything in ourselves. It's all God's doing. Now, God's uses different means than God could prob probably would have used Jesus' own words on the cross to convince this man, especially when Jesus said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Those words of forgiveness could have touched this man and the Holy Spirit would have convicted him. So we see the request from the man and then we see the response from Jesus. And what a response. Today you'll be with me in paradise. With those words of assurance, we're reminded, firstly of an immediate salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Here was again the death blow to all who say that salvation is a matter of faith and works. In other words, by good deeds and a good life we might achieve salvation. Jesus says, today you'll be with me. Remind that Christ's decision will have to take place in the hearts of all people if we're 
know God's salvation. But also with that immediate salvation comes an infinite salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What's paradise? Basically it means being with Christ, being where he is. It's the salvation that begins when we come to Christ and will be complete when we go to be with Christ. It means we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So here was a man who now had an assurance. Such an assurance can only but help surely us to face life and death with confidence and with certainty. Thomas Brooks, another old Puritan, says, death to a saint is nothing but the taking of a sweet flower out of the wilderness and planting it in the garden of paradise. So here we have these lovely words of assurance that we need to be reminded of as we approach this uh, coming Good Friday. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today speaks of the urgency we need to respond now. With me speaks of the company that we will keep being with the Lord Jesus. Paradise speaks of that eternity that will be ours for always. Such as Jesus' response to this man's request, all of which actually is still relevant for us today, 2,000 years as it was 2,000 years ago. There's no time dimension without God. The cross at Calvary is a point in history and a conveying point of eternity. The truth is the cross was in the heart of God long before it ever happened at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. It is a redemptive event for time and eternity. Remember, we all deserve justice, but God gives some mercy. But if we will say, Jesus, remember me, he will say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Such is God's mercy, God's grace, and God's salvation. But let's not forget this. This man was not necessarily just saved at the last opportunity. Of course he was. But perhaps it could have been at his first opportunity. It could have been the first time he had been made aware of the salvation that's found in Christ. Again, it's a reminder to for two persons should not delay in coming to Christ. Firstly, no one has a warning of their death. Death comes unexpectedly so often. No one, not everyone is given a warning about how to get right with God. Second, most people who refuse the gospel when they are well and living often will still refuse when they're not well and it's time to die. That's a great tragedy. My own wife's sister died recently. She had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And um, she was always just putting it off. When it came for her to die of cancer, which she did uh, last year, the barrier was up. She would not listen at all to what was being said to her. It reminds us the older we get, the, old, the longer we live, the hard, harder we can become if we're not careful. But let's remember these two men. The unrepentant man died as he had lived mocking Jesus with his last breath, therefore refusing, refusing the salvation that comes from Christ alone. We're warned, aren't we? 
In Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There is no escape, only a fearful judgment to face. The repentant man shows us that even the worst of sinners can be saved if they truly repent and believe. As William Cooper puts it in his hymn, the dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as see, wash all my sins away. It's all because of the cross. The cross is our starting place, but we have to say as we close, the cross must also be our abiding place. It's a place we go back to again and again. Not to be saved again, but to keep in fellowship and communion with our God. Because sin can be such a barrier. We need to keep coming back to the cross. That's why Fanny Crosby says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. <coughs> Quote a couple of her verses from that hymn. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach the golden strand, just beyond the river. The chorus says, In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Apostle Paul would have agreed with her. In Galatians 6, 14, he says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may that be true for us. May the cross not only be our starting place, but our abiding place.